Well, I'm Bill Berry. I'm one of the elders here at, uh, at ABF, and Scott's been on vacation, got back in uh, day before yesterday, and uh, so they're still jet-lagged, and he thought it'd be a good idea for me to, uh, to talk to you this morning. So I'm glad to be here, and um, looking forward to sharing God's Word with you. You ever try one of these? You know, I just don't get it. I've tried, and I know that there are people that, that know how to solve these things and, and work them out, but for me, it just doesn't make sense. I, I, don't, I don't get it at all. You know, I, I get one color on one side, and I think I'm doing pretty good, and I think I'm on my way, but then I turn it over, and I try to, I try to get this side, and then, and then I messed up this side again. And no matter what I do, the sides keep getting messed up. And I don't know, maybe somebody can help me with that after service. But... Um, what I've found is, I've I, I found that understanding God's grace is, is kind of like this Rubik's Cube. You know, I think I've got grace down. I think I understand. God's grace is what saves us. God's grace is what sustains us. But then I think, go over to the other side, and I think, well, there's got to be something that, that God wants from me. There's got to be something that, that I'm supposed to do. And then I start messing with this, and I try to, try to get the colors right over here, and now all of a sudden the, the gray side's all messed up. And so I go back to the gray side, I say, no, no, it's, it's really, it's all about God's grace. And so, so we really need to just, just focus on that. It's 100% what God does, and, and it's nothing that I do. But then I think, well, if it's nothing that I do, and it's 100% God, then I can kind of do whatever I want. And... God still loves me, and God still cares for me, and God, God still saves me. That doesn't sound right. So I go over to the other side, and I, I start turning this again, and I try to figure this thing out, and, and pretty soon my grace side is all messed up again. And I don't know if you have that experience with God's grace, but today I want to help you understand a couple of principles from God's Word that I think will bring this idea of grace into clearer focus. And I want to talk about what Scripture calls the law of the harvest. And then finally, we're going to end up in the life of David, and I'm going to talk about how David illustrates both the principle of grace and the law of the harvest in his life. So would you pray with me as we get started? Lord, I know that this can be a hard thing for us to understand and really grasp, grasp with our, uh, our little minds. And so I pray that your spirit would be here. Lord, I, I just ask that you would fill us with knowledge and wisdom, that your word would be clear, that I would get out of the way, and that your scripture would speak to all of us this morning. Lord, we open ourselves up to you. We ask for wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to make sure that you understand the principle of grace. You know, for most of you in this room, you could probably quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It says that by grace we've been saved through faith, and even that is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. And a lot of us have committed that to memory, but I think that in the church, sometimes we kind of put that over in the category of uh, that's a salvation verse. That's how we come into a relationship with God. But then once we're in a relationship with God, there's got to be something that, that we've got to do. Got, God wants something of us. There are some things that we need to follow. And in fact, this is a common thing in, in so many religions. Um, you know, you, you come 
by faith into a relationship with God, but then, you know, you're supposed to say certain prayers. You're supposed to go to church a certain number of times. You're supposed to give a certain amount of money, for sure. Uh, you know, some religions say that you're supposed to knock on a certain number of doors in order to make sure that you stay in God's kingdom. Others have um, rules to follow, and, and if you mess up any of the big ones, you know, then, then you're out. And other, others have all kinds of little tiny rules that if you don't follow all of those, then you can't go to the highest level of heaven. You know, you might get to a lower, a lower place, but there's always something that we've got to do. And God's word says, it's Jesus plus nothing. Grace is Jesus plus nothing. Now, in the Bible, we've, we see that this is a common problem in the early churches as well. So Paul writes the book, uh, a book, a letter to the church in Galatia, which is in modern-day you know, Greece and Croatia. And he writes this letter to them. And in Galatians 3.2, he says this. And this is a really interesting passage. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer is, oh, that was really weak. Okay, so <laughs> the answer is going to be hearing with faith, okay? So Paul says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Hearing. Way better, way better. Okay, a little, some of you are still a little bit shaky on that. It's by hearing with faith. But then Paul goes on in the next verse and he says, are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the answer to the rhetorical question is a resounding no. You see, Paul is saying, when you came into a relationship with God, you came by faith. And we stay in that relationship with God in the same way. We don't all of a sudden flip the switch and now we got to do all this stuff and show up at church and do the things and do good works and do all these things to stay in a relationship with God. Paul's saying, are you so foolish? He says that's absolute foolishness to think that that's how we sustain a relationship with God. It continues to be by grace. Sometimes we feel like, you know, we know that God's standard of goodness is, is out of reach. But rather than admit that and just cast ourselves on his grace, we try to make ourselves look better than we really are. And sometimes, even here in the church, we make up certain rules for ourselves in our own minds to help us think that we're in a better standing with God than maybe we really are. You know, we say, well, if I read my Bible this much, you know, if I pray every day, if I do these devotion things, um, you know, if I, if I serve, if I join in a ministry and, I, and I'm serving, and we set up these things, and, and if I can do all those things, and then there's this kind of list of sins over here. If, if I avoid those things, and I do these things, then I'm, I'm doing pretty good, right? And so we fall into that ourselves, and Paul says, that's foolish. It's foolish. We cannot attain to the goodness of God. And the only way that we stay in right relationship with him is to cast ourselves on his grace moment by moment by moment. And I just think that this is something that, that is so natural to try to 
create some artificial way of feeling better about who we are in, in Christ. And it's, it's all him. It's Jesus plus nothing. Romans 4, apparently the Roman church was having, having the same issue. And in chapter 4, Paul talks about Abraham and uses Abraham as this example of faith, not works, not, not stuff that he did, but this great example of faith. And in verse 4 of chapter 4, Paul says this. He says, now to the one who works, his wage is not considered as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who makes the ungodly righteous, his faith is considered as righteousness. So what's he saying? Paul's saying, you know, you show up to get your paycheck, and you've worked hard for, you know, two weeks, and you've put in your time, and you've done the work, and you get paid. Do you look at that paycheck and say, wow, behold, you paid me. It's a miracle. No, you don't say that. You say, of course you paid me. I worked. Paul says here, there's two kinds of people who go to church. There's religious people, and there are real Christians. And he says that the way that you can tell the difference between religious people and real Christians is the way that they approach God. You see, the religious people say, of course you paid me, I worked. They say, I worked, and therefore God owes me some things. A good life, answered prayer, keep bad stuff out of my life. But the Christian says, everything is from God. Every good gift that I get is just because of his grace and because he loves me, not because I worked for it. That's what Paul's saying here. The, uh, the religious person works and expects a paycheck. And the, the Christian depends totally on God's mercy, which is God not giving us what we deserve, and God's grace, which is giving us what we don't deserve, and relies totally on that. Tim Keller has a great analogy in this. Um, and uh, he says that there's two ways that you can live in somebody's house. You can live in somebody's house as a boarder, or you can live in somebody's house as a child. Now, if you're a boarder, the person who owns the house is your landlord. And you can have a pretty good relationship with your landlord, as long as you pay the rent. So you pay rent, that's your part, and the landlord does his part by providing a place for you to live. And you can have a pretty good relationship as long as you both do your part. But if you stop paying the rent, they're eventually going to evict you. Okay? So it's all this business relationship. I do my part, you do your part. And we can walk into and we can get into that kind of a relationship with God where God does his part and I do my part. Um, the second way that you can live in a home 
is you can live with your parents. And it's a completely different relationship. You see, the paradigm when you're renting is if I perform, I'll be accepted. But the paradigm as a child living the house is because I'm accepted, now I'm going to perform. Now I'm going to want to act as a child of my, of my parents, and I'm grateful for everything that they give us. So you can either approach God on a business basis or on a family basis. The difference between a religious person and a real Christian is that the Christian sees everything is coming from God as a gift, and they're totally in debt to God, where the religious person is working to pay the rent. The religious person says, God, come into my life and be my landlord. I'll do my part, and you do your part. The Christian says, God, come into my life and be my father. 1 John um, chapter 3, verse 1, it's a great verse. He says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God. And this word behold, you know, it's like it carries a connotation of, wow, I can't believe it. Behold, look at what happened, that we should be called the sons of God. With a Christian, they have this sense of wonder, this sense of it's incredible. You know, Keller says if you ask a religious person, are you a Christian, he or she will say, Sure, I'm a Christian. I've always been a Christian. Or they'll say, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. But if you ask a real Christian, are you a Christian? They will say, I know. I can't believe it either. But it's true. It's too wonderful to imagine. You see, with a real Christian, there is no of course about it. There is a sense of wonder and the sense of awe that God would make me his child. Well, that's what grace does. I was writing down um, the words that last song that Ch Chad was, was singing, and I, I wrote these down. He says, drawing close, stirred by grace, and all my heart is yours. You don't get that in a business relationship. You don't get that as a religious person. Drawing close, stirred by grace. It's what grace does. It stirs this closeness with God, this sense of wonder with God, and all my heart is yours. Well, that's grace. But some people tend to confuse the truth of God's grace with the next principle, which is what we call the law of the harvest. The law of the harvest says we reap what we sow. Galatians 6, 7 and 8 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this also he will reap. Whoever sows to the flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But whoever sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap life and life eternal. You see, there is this principle of the law of the harvest where we sow what we reap. Now, this was written to an agricultural society, 
right? So they knew about planting stuff and harvesting stuff. They knew about sowing and reaping. In our world, that's a little bit different unless you got a little vegetable garden or something outside. It's not kind of our, our regular vernacular, but I think you understand the idea of sowing and reaping. It just means that what you plant will grow. If you plant an apple seed, an apple tree will grow. You won't get a lemon tree. You won't get a grapevine. You'll get an apple tree. Because whatever you sow, you reap. It's an inviolable law. And if you plant evil, you will reap evil. And if you plant good, you will reap good. And it's just the way that the world works. Paul starts that verse. He says, do not be deceived. Right? And so he's writing to the Galatian church again. He says, do, he, the same church that he said, you better understand this principle of grace, that it's all about coming to God. You come to God by grace. You're sustained in your relationship with God by grace. Everything is by grace. It's Jesus plus nothing. And in the same book to the same people, he now says, whatever you sow, that you will also reap. And he begins by saying, do not be deceived. See, I think a huge percentage of our Christian population gets deceived here. Chuck Swindoll says this. I love this. He says, if there's anything that we've been duped into believing in our era of erroneous teaching on grace, it is the thinking that if we will simply confess our sins and claim God's forgiveness, then all the consequences of all that we have done will be quickly whisked away. When we fall into the trap of sin, all we have to do is turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I confess the wrong. I agree with you that it is wrong, and now I claim your forgiveness, and I count on you to get me back on track. And we think at that point everything is hunky-dory and the consequences are gone. Hunky-dory being Chuck's word, not mine. But, <laughs> but you get the idea. And I think it's many people's Rubik's Cube. They don't get it. They think that asking for forgiveness automatically takes away all of the consequences of wrong or stupid decisions. And it doesn't. The law of the harvest. Swindoll, again, he puts it this way. <laughs> and I love this. He says, grace means that God, in forgiving you, does not kill you. <laughs> Chuck has a way with words. He goes on to say, grace means that God, in forgiving you, gives you the strength to endure the consequences. Grace frees us so that we can obey the Lord it does not mean that sin's consequences are automatically removed. You know, personally, um, in my life, I, I've seen the consequences of sin in, in people's lives uh, throughout the history, even of, of this little church. I've seen ministries lost. I've seen reputations ruined. I've seen marriages destroyed. I've seen businesses dissolved. I've seen people sow seeds of pornography, of greed, of selfishness, of pride, of sexual temptation. I've seen people sow all of their seeds at work and sow nothing at home and end up with a big business and no family. I've seen tragedy in the lives of friends and people, even in the church. 
You see, you can't live like that and just claim 1 John 1, 9, right? Everybody's favorite verse. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whew, I'm so glad about that verse. But it doesn't work that way. God doesn't take away the consequences. He doesn't suspend the law of the harvest for you. We really do reap what we sow. The second point to the law of the harvest is we reap more than we sow. Now think about it. If you plant an apple seed, do you reap an apple seed? No. You reap an apple tree, right? We reap more than we sow. And the great thing is that this works in both directions, both good and bad. Jesus tells the story of the farmer that was you know, going, going down the path, and he's, he's just throwing seed out. And the seed that lands on the good soil produces a harvest of 30, 60, 100 times what he threw out there. Great stuff that, that as we walk in obedience, as we trust God, the law of the harvest says we reap a lot more than we sow. When we sow good, we reap great consequences. We'll see in a bit that David reaped more than he sowed, both on the good side and on the bad side. The third law of the harvest is we reap in proportion to what we sow. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says this, Now he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It goes on to say, Let each one do just as he's purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves the cheerful giver. But the point is, we sow bountifully, we reap bountifully. This does not negate the fact that uh, we reap more than we sow, right? If you plant an apple seed, you get an apple tree. But if you plant 100 apple seeds, you get 100 apple trees. So we reap in proportion to what we sow. I was talking to a woman recently. I, in my real life, I work as a, I give financial advice to people. And I was meeting with a, a client, and we were talking, and I was, we were going through some things, and I asked her about her charitable giving, and she said, you know, she says, I used to give to charity, but I read that with most charities, the majority of the money that you give goes to administrative costs, and not that much actually gets to the end user, and so I thought it wasn't a good use of my money, and I stopped giving. And I encouraged her and just said, look, you, you don't need to give for that other person. You need to give for yourself. You know, you need to think about what giving does when you release money and you give it, um, give it away. What does that do to you? See, the scripture says that giving breaks the power of money in our lives. Giving reverses the tendency to become like um, Ebenezer Scrooge, to turn inward and become small and selfish. Giving turns your heart out towards other people and expands your heart. You need to think about what that does to you, not just what it does to the people that you're giving to. The law of the harvest, we reap what we sow, we reap more than we sow, and we reap in proportion to what we sow. Well, our acceptance by God is based solely on his incredible grace alone, and our behavior does not earn us anything with God. The law of the harvest does not put you in a business relationship with God. The law of the harvest is not paying rent. 
as though God owes us something. But at the same time, the law of the harvest tells us if we plant bad seed, we reap bad stuff. And if we plant good seed, we reap good stuff. It's just the way things work. It's a natural law. It doesn't have anything to do with how we're accepted and loved by God, but it's still the truth. One last thing on that. The law of the harvest is not really so that we can look back. You know what I'm saying? This is not so that we can say, oh man, my kids are really struggling. It must be because I didn't discipline them enough or because I didn't pray for them enough or man, my, my business failed. It must be because I didn't declare all my income on my tax returns last year. Or, you know, we come up with these, these crazy things, and it, it, you can't make this one-to-one link in most cases. Um, you know, it's, it's not so that we can look back. The other thing, the law of the harvest is definitely not a guarantee that if you do good things, bad things won't happen to you. Romans 8 is really, really clear that all things good and bad that happen to everybody else also happen to us. That's a whole different sermon. But, um, but it does not mean that if you do good things that bad stuff won't happen. That, that's just, that's kind of craziness. Um, but what it does mean is you, as you look forward, you can know that if you plant good seed, that you will reap positive things. And what you will reap is things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You will reap a character in conformity with God. You will reap a close relationship with Jesus. That's what you can, that's what you can count on. So I want to, in our remaining time, just look at the story of David um, because there may be no clearer illustration in Scripture of the law of the harvest. We find the story of David in 2 Samuel. And what we see, you know, John talked a couple of weeks ago, David and Goliath, and then he talked last week about David and, um, and Saul and all the things that God was doing in his life to prepare him to become king. And David eventually becomes the king. And... 2 Samuel it just shows these, these extraordinary blessings, how everything David touched just turned to gold. He, he, just amazing things in his life in the first half of the book. So what David did was, when he became king, the first thing he did was he unified all the 12 tribes of Israel. This had never been done before. He, he used his leadership skills, and he, he developed a, a, a country where there were used we're just like scattered tribes. And he pulled everybody together. Then he drove out the Philistines who had just dominated the northern part of the country and expanded the borders to really have a country of, of Israel. He created an army of 280,000 men. He drove out all the strongholds of little pockets of people who were still there antagonizing the Israelites. And he created this, this incredible country. He started expanding the borders. And by the time he was done, Israel was the largest kingdom in the entire Middle East, in the entire known world. And David was the greatest leader, the strongest leader of anybody in the contemporary world. It was an amazing, amazing thing that happened in David's life. Samuel, 2 Samuel 7 summarizes David's or God's relationship to David. 
God comes to David with a message, and he says this. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be the ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on earth. You see, God is reminding David, hey, guy, your job used to be picking up after the sheep. It's a pretty, pretty bad job. And God brought him to the highest heights. So God is saying, don't forget what you, where you came from, and don't forget who brought you here. And David, right after that, in 2 Samuel 7, 18, prays this amazing prayer. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 18 to 29, you can read that for extra credit, and I promise you, you will be blessed by it. But God, David praises God as being awesome and great and magnificent and eternal. And in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 17, there's this summary that says, God gave David victory wherever he went. And in 14 to 17, it says, thus David ruled over all Israel. He ruled well, fair, and even-handed in all his duties and in all his relationships. David sowed faithfulness. And he reaped this incredible harvest. But over time, some things crept in that started to pollute David's spirit. And as you watch it, he started sowing some bad seeds. Did you know that David had at least 21 children from eight different wives? Wow, you know he's getting himself into trouble there. <laughs> Even that wasn't enough to satisfy him. David was rich. He was highly successful. This guy did not deny himself anything. And, um, you know, I found um, in my relationships with people, I, I think that one of the biggest dangers in life can be success. Because success so often leads to pride. Not all the time. I know some people who are incredibly successful, and they are some of the most humble people that I know. But as a general rule, success really has this danger of leading to pride. I mean, think about all the athletes, entertainers, politicians, even pastors who let the success go to their head. And, you know, because of their success, become proud, and they think that the rules that apply to everybody else don't apply to them. They think that the law of the harvest doesn't apply to them. Well, David let the success go to his head. And um, it starts off in um, 2 Samuel 12 by saying, in the springtime when kings went off to war, David didn't. He was not where he was supposed to be. He was where he wasn't supposed to be. And you know the story. He found himself up on the roof. He sees this beautiful woman. He sends to find out about her, and they come back, and they say, that's Uriah's wife. And David sends for her. I mean, think of the chutzpah of this guy, you know? I'll just, I'll send for her. I'm just, I'm above the rules. I'm above the law. Just send her up my way. And you know what happens. And she gets pregnant. And he tries to cover it up, but that doesn't work. And so he kills, he has her husband killed on the battlefield. 
And then he marries her, and he thinks it's all covered up. And God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David. And Nathan, you know, we know the story, but not as much as known about the consequences in David's life. So 2 Samuel 12, Nathan says this after he confronts David, and David acknowledges his sin. Nathan says, Therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Evil will rise up from your own household, and your wives will be given to your own relative. Wow. This is a guy of whom it is said he is a man after God's own heart. And here God says, you have despised me. David pleads for forgiveness, and God says, you shall not die. Kind of reminds me of Swindle, right? You shall not die. And there will be consequences. He did not take the consequences away. And so many people misunderstand this principle of grace, that if we, if we confess and we claim God's grace, that the consequences go away, and they don't. It doesn't violate the law of the harvest. So in chapter 12, Nathan confronts David. From chapter 13 all the way through the end of the book, it's just a series of one calamity after another, these horrible things that happened to David. Remember I said that David had 21 kids by eight different wives. So he's got a lot of half-siblings, half right? Um, you, ever have, you ever know a friend who's from a family that's like a blended family? And maybe there's a couple of different marriages, and there's kids from the, the different marriages, and you try to get it straight. I've got a couple of friends like this, and every time I talk to them, you know, they're like, well, my mom is like, okay, now which mom, are, you know? Or, <clears throat> or you know, my brother is like, you've got a brother? Well, yeah, I've never met him, but, you know, he lives in New York. And, you know, and, and I'm always trying to keep these people straight in, the, in these friends' li lives because they're all, imagine this, 21 kids, eight different wives. So I'm going to try to make this easy for you, but it becomes a little bit difficult to follow all these, all these interrelationships between all of these people in David's life. So I'll, I'll try to, to be a little bit clear. But David's got his two oldest sons, uh, and, and they both start with A, which, which even makes it more confusing. So his oldest son is Amnon, and we're going to put him over here on your right. And the other son is Absalom, and we're going to put him over here on the left. Okay? So Amnon, Absalom, both sons of David from different, different mothers. So Amnon, the beginning of the story, Amnon rapes one of David's daughters. One of his half-sisters, her name is Tamar, and he rapes her with the help of one of his cousins. Well, Tamar is the full sister of Absalom over here, and Absalom finds out about this, and he is ticked. He is just burning in anger and in bitterness, and the two of them now don't talk for two years. So get this. David's daughter is raped. His son is the perpetrator. And his other son hates one of his other sons with a vengeance. And all this is going on in David's house. 
And the question is, where's David? In this whole instance, the only thing that Scripture says is in 2 Samuel 13, 21, it says, Now when the king heard all these matters, he was very angry. That's it. Sound like anyone you know? Absent dad, working 24-7, very successful, not spending any time at home, doesn't really know what's going on, hears stories about what the kids are doing and, and blows up a little bit, but he's not involved. I think this is like an epidemic in our community. David is just like so many people that we know. He's an absent father, and he hears a story about what happened, and he gets angry, but David didn't do anything. So Absalom over here, after two years of smoldering in bitterness and anger, devises a plot to kill Absalom, and he enlists his other half-brothers in the plot, and the group of them end up murdering Absalom, or Amnon, thank you. I even get confused. Amnon over here. So Amnon's gone. So Absalom now is afraid of David. And so he flees. He takes off. He goes to the northern part of the country and he lives with relatives there for three years. And finally, he works out a plan where he can come back and David allows him to come back into Jerusalem. But it says that he didn't see the king's face for two years. Even living in the same city, they never saw each other for two years. So think about this. You got two years after the rape that David's completely absent. You've got three years up in the northern part of the country, and now you've got two more years back in Jerusalem. David goes at least seven years without talking to his oldest son. Didn't discipline him. Didn't counsel him. Didn't show love to him. There's no indication that he attempted to reconcile with him. You know, and I think sometimes as parents, we can kind of get that way too. You know, we can get to where we feel guilty about stuff that, you know, we did or didn't do when our kids were younger. And as they grow up, we tend to want to, like, bypass those things. So we, we avoid confronting them. We don't discipline them. We give them anything that they want. You know, I think this is um, probably most difficult, like in a divorce situation, you know, where the parents might feel guilty about, about what happened and the impact in the relationship with the kids. And so they don't discipline and they, they don't confront. And David was, David was like that. He just, he didn't confront, he didn't get involved in their life. Um, and he didn't do Abnon or Absalom any, any favors at all by ignoring their sin. So Absalom, while he's living in Jerusalem, he's not silent, he's not living like a hermit, he's actually in the middle of town and he's, meeting, he's running meet and greets, he's talking to people, he's winning people's favor, the Bible says he's a good looking guy, he's smart, he's uh, apparently pretty personable, and he, he gets quite a following and people really like him. And don't forget, he's now the oldest son, so he's next in line for the throne. And this guy, after a couple of, after a while, he, he he builds this following, and he, he leads a rebellion against his father, David. And actually, the majority of the army goes with Absalom against David to the point that David had to flee. He had to leave Jerusalem and, and just basically run for his life. 
And when Absalom comes into Jerusalem, one of the things that he does that fulfills prophecy, which is horrible, but Amnon goes in and he sleeps with David's wives on the roof in broad daylight, right where everything started, on the roof. And, you know, it's, um, it's a fulfilling prophecy. You guys, you guys know this story? I mean, you should read your Bible. There's some <laughs> wild stuff in it, you know? You should, you should read these things. It's, it's, it's incredible. Um, <clears throat> David's on the run. He's being hunted by his son. But David has 300 mighty men um, that are, remain loyal to him, and they're the best fighters in all of Israel. And it, ultimately, they prevail. And they, um, Absalom is killed. David's position is restored, but there's this huge amount of pain and suffering in David's life that could have been avoided. But remember the law of the harvest. We reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. We sow an apple seed, get an apple tree. David's first sin was sexual sin. His daughter was raped. Amnon slept with his wives. His second sin was having Uriah killed by the sword. And David had at least four of his sons were killed by the sword, including Amnon and Absalom, his oldest. David failed to invest in the relationship with his sons, and they end up turning on him in the end. Sometime during Absalom's rebellion, David put his trust back in God. And Psalm 3 is actually titled, A Psalm of David When He Fled Absalom, His Son. And David writes this. Now remember, the army turned against him, he had to flee Jerusalem, and he was being hunted by his son. And he pens these words, You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of 10,000 people who have lined themselves up against me. And I love that, that David slept. In the midst of all this turmoil, his faith in God and his relationship with God was restored to such a point that he slept. He was at peace. And David finished well. Despite the suffering, it says that um, in 1 Chronicles 28, let me put that one up, it says, so, so now, and, and David is at the end of his life. He's an old man, and he's looking back, and he's giving a charge to the country and to his son Solomon. And he says, so now, as God, with our wit as God is our witness, and in the sight of all Israel, the Lord's assembly, I give you this charge. Be careful to obey all the commands of the Lord your God so that you may continue to possess the land and leave it to your children as a permanent, permanent inheritance. And then he says this to his son, and Solomon, my son, learn to know the God of your ancestors intimately. Worship and serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind, for the Lord sees every heart and knows every plan and thought. If you seek him, you will find him. I love that he tells his son, learn to know God intimately. David's admonition to Solomon here shows that, you know, at the end of his life, he really was a man after God's own heart despite his flaws and weaknesses. And in 1 Kings, I love, it's really interesting, in 1 Kings 15, there's a summary of David's life, 
It says, David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. It's the summary of his life. He includes that in there, you know? But I think this whole thing circles back to God's grace, to David, that God restored him. He didn't ignore it. In fact, it's right there on his epitaph. But he restored him into relationship. And while David's failure didn't define him and God forgave him, he had a tremendous amount of sorrow as a result of sowing to the flesh. You know, do you believe that? You believe that sowing bad seeds reaps a bad harvest? Because, you know, there are some people in this room that are sowing bad seeds. You're sowing seeds of bitterness. You know, you're mean to your spouse. You're harsh with your kids. You're stingy with your money. You know, room this size might be a couple people who are flirting with an affair, people involved in pornography, as though you can look at that stuff and not have it deaden your soul. And you think that I'm talking to somebody else, somebody else who needs to know about the law of the harvest, but you somehow think that you're exempt and you're not. And I want to just plead with you if you're in that situation. Paul says, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. Take it seriously. You know, God's not looking for you to mess up so he can punish you. He always wants what's best for you. In fact, he he just wants so much. The reason that he tells us how to live is not because he wants us to follow a bunch of rules. It's because that's the way that we're going to live in relationship with him. It's the way that we're going to be fulfilled and we're going to be filled with joy. That's why God tells us how to live. He's cheering you on. He wants you to succeed. He wants you to experience the multiplied blessings that come with sowing good seed 50 times, 100 times more than you ever imagined. So let this be both a warning against thinking that God's grace will rescue you from the consequences of sin and also let it be an encouragement that he blesses us with more than we ever deserve as we sow to the Spirit and those blessings are multiplied over and over. Would you pray with me? As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, let me just talk to you for a minute. For some of you, this message of God's grace is new. You've always thought Christianity was about keeping the rules, about trying to be good enough to please God and earn his favor. And the great news of the gospel is that God loves you right now, just the way you are. You don't have to clean yourself up before you come to God. He accepts you fully. You just need to open up your life to his grace and acknowledge that you're broken and ask for his healing. That's it. The punishment All the punishment that you ever deserved has already been laid on Jesus and there's nothing that you can do but come to him by faith. If you've already embraced the gift of his grace, continue living in it. Don't fall into the trap of living like a border, of paying rent and expecting that God is obligated to work everything out the way that you want it. All that does is nullify the gift of grace in your life. Some of you misinterpreted the principle of grace to mean that there's no consequences to how you live your life. 
If you've been sowing some bad seed, it'll twist you and it will turn you and it will rob you of the joy that God wants you to have in him. But just like David, you can turn around and experience the life that God intended you to have. Lord, I just pray that each person here would see your grace a little more clearly. For those of you, for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that they would embrace your free gift of grace, maybe for the first time this morning. And for those who do know you, that they'd stop approaching you like a border and approach you like a child. That we would all be filled afresh, Lord, with the wonder that you've made us your children. And in that, we are just so thankful. We pray in Christ's name, amen. We're so glad that you could be here with us this morning and, uh, and worship the Lord together. Uh, I want to encourage you, come back next week. Scott's going to be back finally. He's been, uh, been away for a little bit, so Scott's going to be back. And he's going to be kind of helping us understand how David got from this point of being in the depths of his sin to being restored in his relationship with God. And it's going to be good. So come back and bring a friend. Have a great day.